0: You're listening, where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1861, young men from Louisiana to Massachusetts volunteered to fight in defense of their most cherished liberties against an enemy who they believed was threatening to destroy everything that they held most dear. Who was right? Both? Or neither? We'll ask these questions to our guest today, Dr. Chandra Manning, author of What This Cruel War Was Over, Soldiers, Slavery, and the Civil War, on Civil War Talk Radio. programming tools.
2: Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers.
1: Avalar offers a multitude
0: of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few.
1: Take
2: advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com.
0: That's A V A L A R rcom World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. My name is Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you this week from my spacious and, indeed, glamorous office in the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, But, as always, not speaking in the least way for the university, nor does it speak for me. If you're listening uh, to one of the recorded segments of the show, then you you didn't get to hear what came before the show. If you were tuned in live, however, you may have picked up a new show preceding this one this week, uh, somewhat to my surprise, discussing matters that... uh, in, in the words of a not-too-long-ago country song title, I don't think I'd have told that. Uh, some some personal matters, and, uh, uh, well, they're, they're free to do that. It put me in mind of many decades ago as a, a boy watching the Detroit Red Wings on Channel 50 in Detroit, and their announcer, Bud Lynch, was describing the game, and uh he had to do a station promo uh, for, for some other show, and apparently they handed him the piece of paper, and his microphone was open, and he said uh, over there, I'm supposed to say this? And there was a pause, and then in perfect professional tones, he uh, read, human sexual inadequacy will be the topic on tonight's discussion show, blah, 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 whatever it was. Um, that must have been back in the 60s, and, and he was an old-school guy, and that was just not something he was ready to tell the Red Wings audience about. Um, but if you listen to World Talk Radio, you'll get that and more, except here on Civil War Talk Radio, where we limit ourselves to the uh, the, the the topic at hand, the American Civil War and all that goes around it. Uh, one more thing, perhaps more palatable, palatable before we start, is to thank everyone who has sent in a donation to keep the books flowing in so that we can talk to new authors every week or other people involved with Civil War story, uh, feel free to click on the PayPal donation, or if you are uh, old-fashioned and want to just write a check the old way, uh, send it to my office here, and uh, I will try to get it away from the administrators into my own personal hands. Well, our guest today uh, comes with to us from, I believe, Georgetown University. Uh, Dr. Manning, are you there? I am indeed. And uh, before we start, may I uh, call you, is it uh, Chandra? Or? Chandra.
2: I will answer to anything close, but it's actually pronounced Chandra.
0: Chandra. Very good. I'd, I'd like to get that right. Um, people have said my name wrong once or twice in the past.
2: Well, they said mine wrong all the time growing up, and I could never bring myself to correct a teacher in front of the class, so I went entire grades with my name pronounced incorrectly. So I sort of became inured to it, But but I appreciate the effort to get it right.
0: Well, it's uh, from one to another with a a, a name that's not seen every day. I know how that that can be. Well, um, let's start with that. Where did you grow up? Tell tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in the the subject of the Civil War.
2: I grew up largely on Navy bases um, around the country. My dad was in the Navy, and so that meant we lived usually on the edges of the country because that's where the water was. Uh, But we also are... My mom and us kids, when my dad was on cruise, would spend a lot of time with my grandparents, and my grandmother was just a civil war buff um, she was a nut about it, and i can 't really explain why and she couldn 't have explained why, but she was, and anything she liked, I liked from the age of about eighteen months on um, so I sort of just got interested um, in a completely non professional way because my grandmother was
0: no um. Again, uh, before we start too much, uh, let me say congratulations. I believe you have a, a new member of the family.
2: Yes, yes, my own little drummer boy is uh, sitting right next to me. In fact, so if he pipes up, then uh, um, yeah, I have a seven-month-old son.
0: Well, con- congratulations. It's very exciting. Thank you. Um, you mentioned uh, your grandmother was the, the source of your interest, and there's, uh, if you're not aware yet, you will be of uh, the the natural alliance of children and grandparents against the parents.
2: <laughs> um, well, I've always been on one side of that alliance, so uh, I think I'm going to have to uh, get used to the experience of being on the other side of it.
0: It, it, it is a new thing. Uh, well, you'll have fun with that. So where uh, did your grandmother root for one side or the other in her um, interest?
2: Well, she, uh, uh I'm sure that she did. She, In fact, I know she did. She certainly rooted for the Union side. She was also a big Lincoln fan, so oh. I grew up a big Lincoln fan, too. But that made for a real disconnect in the first grade in Jacksonville, Florida, because the first time I learned about the Civil War in school, I learned in a classroom that had a picture of Lee on one side of the flag and Jackson on the other side of the flag, and we pledged in the morning, and then we sang Dixie. Um, so... Yeah, sort of confused to take on the war from pretty early on.
0: Wow, well, that that's uh, that's very interesting. So the, the schools are still.
2: Uh, I'm sure they probably aren't now. This this was a while ago. Yeah.
0: Well, it, it uh, that that is interesting though. I wonder how much, uh, uh, to what extent that that still goes on within the schools. I've actually been asked this week by my fifth grade daughter to come and talk to her class who are studying the Civil War, and here in North Carolina. Um, there are a lot of lot, lot of uh, expatriates here, a lot of uh, transplanted Yankees. So it's, it's not quite as virulent in its uh, southernism, but but maybe I can upset some some of the.
2: It's usually not that hard to do. <laughs>
0: no, now. Um, you it. Go ahead, please.
2: I said it's not that hard to upset people on the subject of the Civil War, but usually when you least intend to.
0: <laughs> That's true. That it is possible to do it inadvertently. Um, well. Now you went on to study uh, you went to harvard university
2: that's right i did that's where I did my um, graduate degree was at harvard
0: and this um, as long time listeners of the show know since i don't get paid to do this, I get my psychic reward by uh, reminding people I have the Harvard uh, degree also uh, at every possible opportunity <laughs> well, this is,
2: actually this is it's a big uh, it's a big week right now for those of us with Harvard degrees because the um uh, word on the street is that Harvard is about to appoint its first woman president, who is a historian of the Civil War. Uh, Drew Faust.
0: It, gonna, is it Drew Faust? Mm-hmm. Wow, that would be something.
2: Yes, and uh, I guess it won't be official until Sunday, but the Boston Globe and the Harvard Crimson are both um, confidently predicting today that that's going to be what happens.
0: That is very interesting. I was I was reading James Henry Hammond in the Old South in bed last night, The Exciting Life of the Historian,
2: <laughs> uh, Drew
0: Faust's uh, biography of a great great planter. Uh, and uh, I was thinking I have to have her on the show sometime. But if she's going to be president of Harvard, she won't have any time for that.
2: Yeah, You'll want to get your bid in early, I would say. That's
0: right. Wow. Well, good for her. That's Well, I, I did want to ask you just how things are... Going there, who is in the history department uh, these days? You were there within the last five years, I guess.
2: Um, at Harvard, yeah, yeah. I, I, I completed it in 2002, so so just barely within five years.
0: Okay. I'm I'm I was seven years before that, so I, I wonder if anybody I know is still there. Who who are the who's the American Americanists at Harvard?
2: Well, the um, I mean the person I worked with, uh, of course, is William Ganap, who has since passed away.
0: Yes, yes um, Bill was a, f- a friend, and that was a tragic loss.
2: So that would be my that, I mean, that that was sort of the lodestar around my around which my graduate school sort of universe st- circulated, um, and I don't think they even tried to really replace him. I think that his his, uh, his number got retired as it were. Um, but uh, the uh, Ernest May is still there, and Akira Iriyeh are still there, and they do sort of 20th century and diplomatic kind of things. Um, Sven Beckert does um, some 19th century, some 19th and early 20th century sort of Gilded Age um, uh, kind of questions. Uh, who else is there? But they're,
0: they're really not a, a mid 19th century person at this.
2: There's point. not. There's not. No.
0: Really when I was, how... David Donald was my advisor, and after he, he was my le- he was I was his last student and he retired and Ernest May was sort of a co-advisor since David had retired uh... and, and Bill Ganap was, was David's replacement and then of course as you say he, he, he tragically lost him to, to the world and the profession uh, not very long ago and and now the chair is empty um, no Right,
2: right there's no right. one now, doing um, civil Um uh, Drew Faust before the presidency began um, she was the—I uh, guess her presidency hasn't begun, so she still officially is the dean of the Radcliffe Institute, which is sort of a research institute. But in addition to that, taught a class, you know, a, class a year or so in the department. So, so that's how they were sort of covering um, the uh, anything from Jacksonian through Reconstruction, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I don't think she'll do that. Obviously, no, she's, so, she's, so I'm yeah. not sure what they'll do.
0: When I was there, the students in the history department had a t-shirt with the word history with square brackets at either end, which in the catalog, at least in those days, if a course had brackets, it meant it wasn't being offered this term.
2: <laughs> so the
0: implication was uh, we listed a great catalog, but none of the courses were actually being offered this term. <laughs> and it sounds like if you want to take Civil War at Harvard, you're going to have brackets for a while.
2: For a while, I think, yeah. Well,
0: that's too bad. Um, well,
2: although, having said that, there are two people there's um uh, in the sort of junior ranks, there's a woman named Susan O'Donovan whose specialty is really reconstruction, but she can do Civil War. And then, um, uh, uh, one of my graduate school cohort, a uh, very good friend of mine, Lisa Laskin, uh, now works in the summer school, not in the history department, but she will sometimes offers a Civil War class, too. So, there was, so the Civil War will be offered there, but it will probably get um, sort of split up between those two people, between Lisa Laskin and Susan O'Donovan. That is my completely based-on-nothing prediction.
0: Well, that, that's, that's more. now I know more than I did before, so I
2: appreciate
0: <laughs> hearing that. Now, currently you teach at Georgetown. Yes. How do the students there compare, particularly in Civil War studies, uh, to to the students you had at Harvard? It's actually
2: easier to compare if I add the sort of interim step in my career. I finished at Harvard, and I then had a one-year lectureship, which essentially means you fill in for somebody who's on sabbatical at Harvard. So I did that when I finished. And then I taught for two years. Um, at a small college in western Washington called Pacific Lutheran University. And then I came back east and started at Georgetown. And at the three different places, it's actually been quite interesting because both Harvard and um, Georgetown, most of the students, not all of course, but most students are east coast. And at Harvard in particular, a lot of southerners took the Civil War class for whom Civil War had been sort of breathed in the air since, you know birth on, so it was interesting, therefore, to contrast uh, teaching there and and to some degree, though it's a little different at Georgetown with teaching students from Western Washington, most of whom really you know lived within twenty miles radius of the school and so when I went and started teaching the Civil War in Western Washington I learned first of all that I could not take the same things for granted and they sort of, they probably knew Gettysburg but I couldn't assume I couldn't assume the knowledge base that I could um, when I taught in the East with students who you know drove up i-95 and through the battlefield corridor their whole lives but at the same time I also didn't have such entrenched opinions to sort of work around or through or over as is sometimes the case with students who really have grown up amongst the Civil War. So having a west coast experience is actually a pretty interesting counterpoint.
0: I've heard that from others who've taught uh, in the west that the students it really is it's not the felt history that that it is for those of us east of the Mississippi.
2: Right. Students always took the class, it wasn't you know, it was it wasn't under enrolled or anything, so they were perfectly interested in it. They just didn't um, they didn't have quite as visceral um, th- their feelings about it weren't quite as visceral, and they, and they really just didn't have the same familiarity. Whereas, you know, if you wanted to know anything maybe about the railroad, <laughs> they could tell you anything you wanted to know about when the railroad came through. So they just had a different sort of points of reference um, well. in terms of the historical events that had really shaped the world as they knew it.
0: Yeah, and, and the Civil War does shape the world. As, as again, those of us east of the Mississippi sure. pretty much know it. Uh, I find with the, the students here in North Carolina, you, you will get the the hardened stare if you uh, talk too much about uh, the wrong issues, uh, which for some, which vary depending on who the student is. But sure. uh, it, it can be it can be it can be challenging. It can be uh, difficult uh, to get keep students engaged without uh, driving them away, uh, driving some of them away, who don't want to be engaged in an open debate. Um, well, let's talk about what um, uh, what it is that, that you are working on, now, or I guess you have finished now, uh, your book uh, on the, the meaning of the Civil War.
2: That's how it sort of. That's how the dissertation sort of started. The um, the book got a little bit more specific. I guess, I guess that's supposed to happen. Um, but I um, yeah, the book is done. I thought I would never be able to utter that sentence, but but I can, and it will be out in April. Um, and it began as my dissertation at Harvard, and the dissertation began um, from a couple of impulses. Uh, one was uh, really the desire to work with soldiers' letters and diaries as sources because. What I was really interested in um, going into graduate school and still uh, um, were, were ordinary people's ideas and how what they thought influenced or didn't influence what they did. The problem with being interested in a sort of social slash intellectual history of regular people is they don't tend to leave you know, massive bodies of papers. But the Civil War, of course, meant that regular people were away from home for four years, and. So people they would normally talk to they had to write to, and so this cache of sources exists that really is not paralleled for any other period that I know of at least in U.S. Okay. history. So I started with the desire really to, to use those sources and to use them as a way of getting at regular people's ideas.
0: I'm going to just step in. We're going to take a short break. <laughs> We're going to come back and talk more with Chandra Manning about for her new book what this cruel war was over soldier's slavery in the civil war and we'll do that in just a minute on civil war talk radio world
2: talk radio
0: civil war was unique In the high level of literacy of the soldiers and the number of letters that have survived telling us what they thought, what did they think the war was about? We'll find out from our guest today, Dr. Chandra Manning, author of What This Cruel War Was Over, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website SmallBusinessSuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small Business Success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't? You should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. Smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to
0: you. Radio, with Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Chandra Manning, author of the forthcoming What This Cruel War Was Over, Soldiers, Slavery, and the Civil War. We're talking this day in February 2007. Maybe by the time you're listening, the book is already out, and you can go and get it. If it's not out, and yet you must buy something this week, be sure and buy a second or third copy of my All for the Regiment. Well, in our first segment, we talked about the uh, the why write on this topic and uh, of course one reason to do so is it's one of the few uh... topics in which in the nineteenth century you have a huge body of written evidence uh... Of soldiers and their families writing to one another on a topic of political importance uh... And, and i wanted to pick up with that asking a question about that do the letters really that, that you read really talk about what this war was over Did, you, you would imagine that letters would be filled with, uh, oh, I miss you, how are the kids, uh, what's the weather like?
2: One of the things that's so interesting is how um, that I found really interesting about the letters is how freely different kinds of topics seem to intermingle. The first paragraph is almost always um, how glad I was to get your letter or a scolding for not writing to me often enough. Take your pick, Mm -hmm. and then there might be something about the family and the kids, and then there's something about the state of one's bowels um, more than you ever wanted to know. But then, then the and that's the first paragraph. But then the body of the letter will toss topics around, and it's fascinating to me. Um, I sort of have this sneaking theory that ideas about um, big topics must have felt close to people because they'll write about family members and they'll write about. Uh, the cousins over in the next town, and in the next paragraph they'll write about, I don't know, the Constitution or they'll write about slavery, and then they'll be on to, um, do you remember last Christmas? And so the intermingling of topics was one thing that I found genuinely fascinating.
0: I, I, I've noticed that phenomenon, and it struck me as odd that soldiers would write, uh, as you say, about the Constitution, about the ideals we're fighting for, because partly because... Uh, Normally, after a certain number of years of marriage, your spouse pretty much knows all your political
2: opinions,
0: (laughs) and you're away, and why would you be sending back home stuff? Surely you've already repeated over the dinner table 40 or 50 times, or maybe it's that experience of doing it, doing it again by letter.
2: I think there might be some of that, but I think also, for Union soldiers in particular, their ideas really change over the course of the war, I believe, and change more than they could have predicted they would change um, before they left. And part of the reason why Union soldiers are as loquacious as they are, I think, is because they really um, feel like they have to explain this change. To loved ones at home, who they don't think are keeping up with the change, and the change—the way in which I think many of them really do change—is are their opinions on slavery. And so, while the dissertation started out sort of a more broad, broadly conceived, or maybe not conceived at all, question, such as what, did, why did soldiers think the war started, or what did they think it was about—is how I think I started. I soon realized that they talked about slavery a whole lot more than I thought that they would, and. I needed to explain that because if you are a union, if you are a northern 24 year old farmer or shipbuilder or something like that, who knows maybe four, who has maybe met four black people in your life and is, you know, certainly not much of an abolitionist at all before the war, why on earth then would you spend so much of the war thinking and talking about this topic that you really would have rather avoided before the war? And so that's how the sort of union section of the book evolved in my own thinking. And what I think happens for many Union soldiers is, um, they go south and they do, then two, two realizations sort of hit them. And one is, slavery is a lot worse than I thought it was. I had no idea that it was really that bad. And what makes them think that more than anything else, or at least the line of reasoning they use more than any other in trying to convince people at home are, um, is their own eyewitness uh, observations about what's, what happens to slave families, and that, that really, really bothers them. And so, so they see slavery for the first time. They decide, wow, this is much worse than I thought. They also determine by being in the South, by the war being real and not um, sort of theoretical, and by talking to white Southerners, there never would have been a war if it had not been for the institution of slavery. And what that means is we either have to get rid of this institution or we're going to fight the war all over again and they come to this realization and so they find themselves calling for an end to slavery well that is exactly what abolitionists did before the war and we thought they were all crazy so i have to explain to you how i came to this conclusion and so i think that helps explain why union soldiers talk about it so much more than i thought that they
0: would well that's that's very interesting and you mentioned that they specifically focus on the family, the, the, the breaking up of, of families, or the effect of slavery on families. Yes. Um, w- which is the strategy that Harriet Beecher Stowe used. In, and it's funny Britain. that you
2: say that, because the book that they cite or quote or refer to more than any other except the Bible is Uncle tom 's Cabin.
0: And how do they use it?
2: Usually by, say, they'll offer an example of something they've seen, and then they'll say, you know, as you can see, Uncle Tom's Cabin didn't even come close. Or Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, gilded the lily too much. Or, or, so these same people who you rather imagine might have thought that Uncle Tom's Cabin was sort of propaganda and was over the top and was, um, you know, a distortion before the war, find themselves during the war saying she didn't go far enough. I think in part, I mean, at first I thought, well, maybe they were just conditioned to look for uh, family breakups because of Uncle Tom's Cabin. but enough of them were saying she doesn't go far enough or it it doesn't tell the half. But I began to sort of take them more seriously.
0: One thing I found in, in my reading of Soldiers' Letters, and this is mostly from the Western Theater, where... If anything, they were less abolitionist going in. Uh, one of the things that, that persuaded a number of the writers I come across to become more anti-slavery was the, 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 the malleability of, of the definition of race. Th- that yes. many of the, the slaves didn't look like what they thought slaves would look like.
2: Oh, I think you're absolutely you right. I, I think that these light-skinned slaves do a couple of things in their own mind. Um, one is they, they they touch on this. concern for the sanctity of the family. I mean, the 19th century is a time when ideologically, at least, and ideology didn't always match lived reality, but ideologically, the the family is posited as sort of the haven from the vagaries of the marketplace, and so families being broken up by a marketplace just doesn't square. Uh, So that's a problem. Um, But the the, the visual appearance of light-skinned slaves says a couple of things. One, well, if they're light-skinned, then uh, then somewhere somehow the masters are sort of fathering and, and selling their own children, and that is a problem for uh, for soldiers. But also what's a problem for soldiers is they don't look that different from me. And so color or race or, or visible appearance isn't the sort of impermeable barrier between slave and free, um, between having rights and not having rights, Uh that it might once looked have looked to have been so. Whereas it might have been very easy for slavery to be a sort of remote topic that couldn't possibly have anything to do with me, when some soldiers at least see slaves that look like them, that that idea that it has nothing to do with me becomes harder to maintain. I think, and there's even I can even think of one soldier who um, he is talking to a light-skinned slave woman, and and uh, and she's talking about her children, and he sort of expresses some surprise that she's talking about them with such affection that she looks at him and she says, well, one of them actually looks a little bit like you, and I miss them just like your mother would miss you. And this is a revelation for him that, A, anyone who, looking like him could be a slave, and, B, that they shared the same sort of familial emotions as he did. And um, I think that soldier was from Wisconsin. He was a Midwestern soldier. Uh, and, and that at least in his writing and his own telling of his war experience, he was writing home to his parents at the time. That was really an important moment for him, important enough for him to narrate the whole scene.
0: Now, the, the soldiers from the Midwest, uh, from throughout the, the northern states, also, it, it seems to me, were radicalized or, or driven toward a stronger anti-slavery position by the request that they participate in slavery, that, that especially in, in places like Kentucky, where you have many Union loyal slaveholders, yeah. uh, if a slave gets into your camp, in theory, the, the loyal Union citizen should be able to go into your soldier's camp and seize this slave. Yeah. Um, the no, soldiers didn't like that.
2: Even, even very early on, even soldiers in Virginia... Um, when, uh, when the war first begins and the expectation is that all private property will be not disrespected but protected, um, soldiers find themselves, you know, approached by, uh, local slaveholders in the expectation that soldiers will send back fugitives who have run into their camps. And, and I think you're absolutely right. The idea that, uh, that we have to become sort of implicated in this process. Um, plus, we have enough to do anyway. We don't want to go chase down somebody else's slaves. I think that the both the uh, sort of idealistic and the practical kind of mingle um, to make many of them think a lot harder about the institution than they had. But but you're right, that kind of calculus goes on even longer among soldiers stationed in Kentucky um, because, of course, Emancipation Proclamation doesn't touch Kentucky. And so constitutionally, at least, slaveholders are still entitled to their property there if they're loyal to the Union. And and uh, and I and I think and radicalize is probably a good word. Although I would add one limitation to it, I think that does radicalize soldiers' ideas about slavery. Their ideas about race are a little more slippery. Mm-hmm. Um, they they uh, they sort of separate out. I think how they feel about slavery from how they feel about. Sort of stickier questions like civil rights for black Americans. and, um, and uh, they don't become as radical on that question as they do on the slavery question, although some of them change more than they thought they would if you would ask them at the beginning of the war. But on the slavery question, they really become they, they really do begin, I think, to see that one as, as non-negotiable as the war progresses.
0: Now, if we look at the historiography of, of what soldiers thought, uh everybody would want to begin, I imagine, with Bell Wiley. and his. his
2: that's who uh, I always say is the beginning, yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: you, you have to start there. And anyone listening to the show who has not read The Life of Johnny Reb and Life of Billy Yank actually wouldn't be listening to the show.
2: Probably not. Uh, I want to say that the, the the Life of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank is probably responsible, um, for the good or bad, for more sort of books about the Civil War than almost any literary event since the Ordinance of Secession, because I think that that's how so many people get inspired
0: they, they are, are, are wonderful books, and they, they hold up very well. Um, to the extent he talks in those books, though, about motivation, there, there's a—it's uh, almost apolitical. The, the guys fight for their their comrades, but they're not much interested in the big issues. And if we go uh, a step further to uh, to James McPherson uh, today, or in the last decade. Uh, things are very much changed he yeah. he argues in his books that it 's very ideological do you how do you differ from, from mcpherson 's interpretation um, uh, if if at all
2: uh, yeah, well I'm asking, i 'm asking i I ask a slightly different question but the question but my my first question i, I started asking similar questions to him to his and then evolved in mcpherson 's in fact let me take a step backwards. Yeah. I came to the topic in part because, uh, that I eventually wrote my dissertation on, because um, I was a teaching assistant, as most graduate students are, in uh, graduate school, and I was just beginning to think about my topic. And and uh, there are all of these sort of studies that sort of assume a non-ideological Civil War soldier, but to me it sounded like they were writing about either World War II soldiers or Vietnam War soldiers more than... 19th century soldiers who who were different, who you know thought differently than we did. So so I was already ready to be persuaded that. Um that soldiers actually did entertain thoughts from time to time. And the class that I was a TA for was, lucky for me, the Civil War and Reconstruction, and the class was supposed to read For Cause and Comrades by McPherson, and they read it. And so we had our class discussion, and they were chatting away. They could answer, you know, have, we, we had a pretty good discussion going, actually, until I asked them, well, what was different between Union and Confederate soldiers? And then there was this dead silence, which... Sometimes just means they didn't read the book. (laughs) But they'd been talking before that, so I knew that that wasn't the case. And I thought, huh, maybe there is still room for a more sort of explicitly comparative look at what Union and Confederate soldiers thought. And so that's how I used to think I would answer that question, that that I took a more comparative look than McPherson does. And I also uh, look a little bit more at change over time but as i got into my project more and more what i really became intrigued with was these guys really did think and talk about slavery much more than i anticipated and that's really what i wanted to explain um, more than anything else is 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 why what did slavery mean to them how did it shape their war so i would say that that's probably the biggest difference between um my book and For Cause and Comrades. For Cause and Comrades is about sort of a constellation of ideas that soldiers think about and talk about. And mine is about, my topic is a little narrower in that I'm really trying to get at the heart. I'm not just trying to show, look, they talk about slavery, uh, because I think he does that pretty persuasively. I'm really trying to get at why. You know, what did slavery mean to um, a white non slaveholding Southerner who still nonetheless is convinced, or tells his wife at least, that he can't stop fighting this war because disaster will ensue if slavery goes away, or what does slavery mean to the uh, Wisconsin farmer who had never seen a slave before, but decides, even before the Emancipation Proclamation, that slavery has to go away. So the, so the question's a little more focused, and um, there's a, I think there's a lot more attention to change over time. I think that Union soldiers in particular really do undergo a big change. So I wouldn't see it in opposition. In other words, um, I would see it as sort of uh, maybe starting where McPherson starts and then veering off a little bit to ask a slightly different question.
0: In in uh, it, it sounds like, and I, I have not read the book since it's not out yet, but I look forward to it very much. Um, organizationally, do you address the Union and Confederate soldiers separately?
2: Um, not really. I uh, the book is organized chronologically. There is a union in the Confederate section, though within each chapter. So they're, they tend to be treated. They're, they're, they'll always both be in the same chapter, but uh, sometimes the chapter begins with the Union and then goes to Confederate, or sometimes it goes the other way. It sort of depends on, on uh, sort of depends on the internal logic of the chapters themselves. Who comes first? So they are in the same chapter, and then the chapter. Most chapters at the end sort of compare what's going on with the two at the time. Uh, But they each get their own separate discussion within every time period that the book talks about.
0: I guess I'd like to ask the question you asked your students um, about the difference between the northern and southern soldiers. Uh, And I find that's a question with with my students that's often difficult if we're talking about the ideology of slavery Uh, No one has any problem understanding how someone could be an abolitionist or how someone could become more anti-slavery, but explaining how uh, people that are not evil uh, in other ways, and uh, here in North Carolina may indeed be one's own direct ancestors, how they could support uh, an institution that we find inhuman, uh, and
2: that took me a long time, because to be honest, I I went into the project thinking that what I was going to find was that non-slaveholders really weren't fighting for slavery. They really had their own sort of agenda, and the process of the war for them was figuring out that they'd been sort of tricked or hoodwinked into a battle that wasn't really theirs. And they sort of therefore withdrew their loyalty, and that's how the war ended. And that's I, kind of what I thought. I, I went in expecting to see that kind of story.
0: Let okay. me step in again here briefly, because this Just, is a good to take a break. We're going to, oh, to take a short break. Uh, we're going to come and find out what they were fighting for on the southern side as well as the northern. When we come back in just a moment with Chandra Manning on Civil War Talk Radio. White families did not own slaves during the Civil War. Yet, many argue that slavery was the reason all of them fought. We'll put this question to Chandra Manning, author of What They Fought For, with, I'm sorry, What This Cruel War Was Over, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: It's the one-level playing field in business—the internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than
0: a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs
1: a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective
0: organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio. A P
1: S Y O. For more info, visit www.apsio.
0: You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Chandra Manning, author of What This Cruel War Was Over, Soldiers of Slavery and the Civil War. We talked in our previous segment a little bit about northern soldiers' views and their evolution over the course of the war, and we're just getting into the subject of what the southern soldier perceived as the reason for fighting. Uh, Chandra, it sounds like you were in good company, uh, you and Abraham Lincoln both, uh, starting out with the assumption that most southerners, especially the non-slaveholders, were not particularly interested in fighting for the institution, but were duped by the uh, the elite, the Southern elite, who convinced them to go to war. Uh, eventually, Lincoln was uh, disabused of this notion and realized they were never going to uh, stop fighting willingly. It was not a matter of a few loyal, a few disloyal people at the top. Uh, did you go through the same process in your research?
2: Um, something similar, yeah. I, I really did think that... Uh, it wasn't that I thought that uh, all you know, non slaveholders were all closet unionists. I wasn't sure that I thought that, but I thought that their reasons for not being unionists, for for, for for wanting to fight uh, for a separate country, would be different from sort of elite reasons. Uh but eventually, I came to the conclusion that I was doing the one thing that I really, really try and get my students not to do, and that is I was patronizing my subjects. I was assuming that they um, were, one, that easily duped, and, two, when they kept talking about slavery, that they really meant something else rather than rather than believing them, rather than trying to figure out, rather than assuming that if I was in their position, I would never would have done that. I had to get. I had to let go of that. I had to just try and figure out what their world looked like from their point of view. And once I did that, what I decided, or the sort of conclusions I came to, were that white Southerners lived in a world so infused with the institution of slavery, even if they didn't own them, even if their family didn't own slavery, slavery infused every aspect of life. It was such a part of society. It was in the Bible, so God must approve. Um, it was in the community, it was a source of order. Uh, It was almost a source of sort of white men's identity as men in that uh, in the sort of southern social order, um, white men exercise authority. That's part of what makes them men, and they exercise authority over slaves, and they exercise authority over the household. And if you start questioning authority in one place, what happens to it? in other places, and so every aspect of their world is infused with this institution, which makes it very hard to imagine a world without that institution. It makes it very hard to believe that what you care about and what you love would really be safe, would really be untouched if this institution went away. And so I see over and over again soldiers, non-slaveholding soldiers, riding home to their wives who want to know how fighting can be more important than helping us, um, because we're really in trouble here say over and over that, but you're not safe, nothing, you're not safe, the children aren't safe, the farm isn't safe if slavery goes away. And they say it in, it often in, frankly, much more graphics language than that, but that's kind of the conclusion that I came to, that what really mattered to Confederate soldiers, and I do think this is true, were their families, um, and their homes but particularly their families, but they genuinely believed that those families were in danger if slavery went away, not just At the beginning of the war, it isn't that they're so much worried about Union soldiers. In other words, the argument could be made, well, of course they're worried about the safety of their homes. There are armies there. But at the beginning of the war, they don't think the Yankees can fight well enough to march over the next hill in Georgia. They do, however, think that the Yankees can stir up slave insurrection if they mess around with these these crazy ideas too much. And so, so that was what I decided about. Confederate soldiers, that um, that they genuinely and believe that everything they care about depends upon the survival of this institution, whether or not they own slaves. And as the war really destroys everything else that matters in their lives, um, they continue to believe that the Confederacy might not be at all what we had in mind, um, the war isn't going at all how we thought it would, but now that we're in the war, if the Union wins, they will definitely get rid of slavery, and that means we have to hang in there uh, and prevent that.
0: So um, last week on the show we had uh, Peter Carmichael and uh, uh, talked a little bit about generational ideas. Mm-hmm. The week before, we, uh, Bruce Levine talked about Confederate emancipation and echoed some of what you're saying uh, in, in trying to explain why the Confederacy didn't, uh, didn't even consider in any meaningful way uh, tapping uh, an enormous pool of, of black manpower uh in self defense if if as you say the the institution of slavery is ultimately what you're fighting for uh in in some way if not the direct ownership of slaves, then of course you can't consider emancipating slaves uh, uh, and
2: in fact and, and I think that most confederates would more they would have seen themselves uh, they would see themselves fighting against the disappearance of the institution, probably more than, um, more than. Uh, in other words, they are fighting for slavery, but in their mind, they're fighting to make sure it does. They're, they're fighting to protect it from destruction, more than fighting to necessarily sort of promote or advance it. Although that's not entirely true, because they do think it should go west. Uh, but, 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 but in their mind, it really is a defensive war, but the institution is what needs defending. And the, um, the, the question of emancipating and, and arming black soldiers at the end, that, I think, is the breaking point for an awful lot of Confederate soldiers, because by 1865, by March of 1865, March 13th, I think, is when the Confederate Congress finally passes uh, the Black Enlistment Bill. Uh, oh, shoot. Are you okay, honey? Sorry. Uh, By by that time,
0: first things first.
2: (laughs) Yeah, sorry about that. I just got sick. Um, By March of 1865, uh, almost everybody's family is in trouble. Almost, you know, tons of territory are in Union hands. It really, there really is not a ton of hope left by March 13th, 1865, or by the time that the even, you know, even in the weeks before the bill is passed. But when that bill is passed, I've seen so many soldiers say over and over, "Well, that's it. Now, 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 there's really nothing left. Now you've really destroyed anything that was left to fight for, because what you've done is you have just put a slave on an equal. And that that phrase turns up a lot. Uh, Put the put a slave on an equal with a white man. I mean, these slaves are are are, they're going to be privates at the exact same rank as most soldiers have. And so that really is, in the minds of a number, I argue I argue that's a decisive breaking point in the minds of um, of, of many, many, really the bulk of the non-slaveholding Confederate ranks.
0: Now, does that, then, do you think, it help explain why we don't see a guerrilla war uh, on a larger scale than, than we do? Why the confederates don't follow the example of marion and sumner and uh, for that matter george washington and just take to the hills uh, try to keep a force in being uh, yeah
2: I, that's another place where i think it, that their reasons are a combination of the very practical and the ideological yeah i think that's a big reason why there's no point in us being soldiers anymore because you've just degraded what a soldier is and you've just destroyed any reason for being a soldier in addition to which is all of these other reasons that have been building up the you know, the farm is a mess at home if it's still even there. Um, families are, families are in, are in deep need. I mean, there's a lot of hardships by 1865. So, um, so the very practical, practical concerns I think are, are also, are also relevant. But I think it's the mixture of those two things that the, the ideological underpinning, although they wouldn't probably say ideological underpinning, but, but the reason for fighting is gone and, Frankly, I'm needed at home, and so uh, I mean, I've been having a hard time convincing my wife that staying in the Army was a good idea anyway. I'm definitely not going to be able to do it if uh, if, if if there really isn't an Army anymore.
0: Um, I wonder if you've read uh, Jackie Campbell's uh, argument, uh, in which she talks about the, the, the campaign in the Carolinas, when Sherman marches north through the Carolinas.
2: I know of her book, but no, I'm embarrassed to say, no, I haven't read it. Well,
0: well she um, uh, she argues that what she found in the, the Southern women's letters from that period is that the, the women who actually encounter Sherman's army, uh, the ones who have the firsthand experience, rather than writing the desperate letters saying, please come home from Virginia to their husbands, they do become uh, more pro-Confederate rather than less uh, Maybe having come to the experience where they've, they've, they've lost uh, all there is to lose, pretty much, they, they are the hardest cases. It's the women whose farms are not touched who are writing these letters saying, please come home and protect us, uh, and inducing their soldiers, their, their husbands, to desert. But the ones who are actually, who have Union soldiers on their property, are, are saying, uh, damn, we, we, we hate them more than anything now, and, and you stay there and fight.
2: By 1865, though, I think that the biggest enemy is less. I mean, the Union. Well, I don't want to overstate this. The Union Army is a pretty big enemy. But by 1865, the the uh, hunger is a big enemy, and and hardship is a big enemy, and shortage is a big enemy. Um, so uh, I have not read wives' letters in anything in anything like the numbers that she has, or some um, or some other people have, um, but. The ones that are but the soldiers writing back to their wives uh, when their wives are sort of asking them to come home they 're rarely being asked to come home because the army is right there they 're being asked to come home because um, well sometimes sort of confederate policy has has harmed the farm uh, impressment or or what have you but uh, but you know most often we 've had four years of the of you know your labor being absent from the farm and and uh, four years in which armies of any kind have been tromping through here. And, and and so I think hardship, at least as much as actual Union soldiers, is inspiring a lot of um, women who are writing to say, come home. And I'm also not trying to say it's all a women's fault and so they lost the Civil War or anything like that. I think soldiers, whether or not their wives are writing these kinds of letters, are worried about their families at home.
0: And and I think we're sort of adding a high degree of verisimilitude to the uh, the story here. As you are torn between the home front, and uh, I, I can hear your, your little boy uh, uh, demanding your attention. And yes,
2: he thinks he's been good long enough. At,
0: at, <laughs> right. And your, your professional efforts uh, on behalf here, so I very much appreciate both. Um, well, let me ask you an easier question, maybe Thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, less cerebral, but... Uh, a fantasy question, which I often ask, ask people on the show. If you could go back to the uh, 1860s for one hour in complete safety uh, and come back again, who would you like to go back and talk to for that hour?
2: Oh, that's a good question. That's a very good question. I mean, my my, um, my son uh, Aidan's middle name is Douglas with two S's for Frederick Douglass, uh, And... Um, I'd love to talk to him about uh, about what he sees changing and what he sees not changing, really, uh, during the war. So that, he, he would be a contender. Um, I have a few favorite soldiers, though, too, that sort of, you know, no one would have any reason to have heard of, but that I just grew to like over the course of my research. There's a guy named Lee Weber, who's just, uh, he, he's a Kansan, and, Sometimes he's very admirable, and sometimes he's not admirable at all, but he's a very sharp observer. And sometimes I think I would like to go talk to him and about what he didn't put in his letters. So he would be a contender. Um, you know, this close to February 12th, it's impossible not to put Lincoln on the list.
0: And of course, Abraham Lincoln is, always makes uh, many of those lists. Wow. Well, I, I will let you attend full-time to the, the family duties, uh, but I really appreciate you being on the show today. Uh, oh, my pleasure.
2: I, Thank you for asking me.
0: I'm very much looking forward to your book in April 2007 uh, called What This Cruel War Was Over, Soldiers of Slavery and the Civil War. And listeners, if you've read uh, any of Chandra's articles in North and South, you know that the book is going to be a good one, and you'll want to go out and get a copy of that. So thanks again for being on the show.
2: Thank you very much.
0: And listeners, thank you for listening today to Civil War Talk Radio.